Good afternoon. It is Monday, the 12th of February, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish, with me in the studio, Mike Robinson. And we're delighted to be joined by Mark Anderson uh, from the States. Well, we're going to get uh, started straight away with what's really disaster in the Royal Navy. We've got uh, quite a strong report on defence today. And I'm going to say we are making the statements we're making out of respect to the member of members of our armed forces, because it's blatantly apparent that uh, service men and women are being betrayed by the British government. But let's kick off with the latest disaster. Well, a little while ago, of course, the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier wasn't able to sail uh, due to a propeller shaft problem. Uh, I was um, interested with this uh, headline from Business Insider because it said the high profile failure of a 3.7 billion pound, uh, sorry, billion dollar aircraft carrier shows how Britain is struggling to keep up with first-rate militaries. What a true statement there. But this is really the rub because, of course, the second carrier, HMS Prince of Wales, uh, has now also been unable to sail due to um, what I would suspect is the same or similar problem. Yes, but hold on a second. The HMS Prince of Wales is only out of dry dock for exactly that problem. Are you it, suggesting that it's recurred after the fact after it hasn't sailed anywhere? Uh, it's just I, I could believe so, Mike, because I think this is a this is a, an original design problem, and this is going to cause big problems because because the people we've spoken to, there's no easy fix around this. So this is design trouble and uh, they're in big trouble. So no aircraft carriers for the UK. So um, obviously the Houthis are not going to be seeing this tremendous weapon uh, out in their neck of the woods. Um, I've titled this orchestrated breakdown, but not to worry, we can't get an aircraft carrier to sea. Uh, but according to the uh, Telegraph defence journalist, Danielle Sheridan, the Royal Marines' new vessel to deliver a lethal punch. There we are. There's a picture of the lethal new vessel for the UK. I'm having difficulty keeping a straight face, but this is the reality of the madness. Uh, what are we looking at? We're actually looking at an upgraded rubber boat with some machine guns on it. But yes. uh, according to the defence correspondent of the Telegraph, here she is, Danielle Sheridan. And if we have a look at her experience, um, she's been defence editor for a year and 10 months um, before that political and defence correspondent. Uh, but I'm going to say that this young lady can't cut the mustard because she should be ripping the Ministry of Defence to pieces. What does she do instead? Well, this is a bit more of her article with some astonishing information. This uh, little boat has been repainted in grey to, to help it hide, Mike. Uh, it's incredible, isn't it? It's got new engines, so it can do 200 miles at 40 knots. It's got a new configuration of the driving position. It's a bit like selling a car. It's got new cooling systems, a mast and a trim for better protection in sea conditions. This is remarkable. And the CRC has three crew who rotate on long journeys. Well, presumably they're going to be doing longer journeys than the two aircraft carriers. Let's have a look at some video clips in order to get an idea of um, who has been saying what. And these are astonishing. We've, we've given you a little um, compendium of videos. Let's start with the first one, which is Grant Shapps. Well, um, apologies, he wasn't actually speaking, but that was from his Twitter page. And uh, what is he talking about? He's talking about the uh, latest and greatest missiles, which are apparently shooting down the Houthi drones. The only problem is information coming into the UK column says that there's a problem with toxic fumes on board the Royal Navy ships firing these. That is the allegation. Uh, we're going to do our very best to see whether we confirm that. Uh, but clearly it seems there's some sort of problem there. There's certainly a problem with the carrier. Well, let's have a look at uh, what Admiral Radikin had to say about his duties. Uh, we showed this a few months ago. First of all, I do love your office. Did you choose it to make it as like being on a ship as possible without actually being on one? So uh, I suppose we're lucky 
So um, this is a fantastic place to base a Navy headquarters. So um, we're at the top of the harbour, we're on Whale Island, and it's fantastic to have large windows and it's great for me to be able to look out and see our ships. Uh, I think it's less good for our ship CEOs to know that <laughs> they're, they're, they're under the gaze of the, of the headquarters. In a way, it's reassuring that when you go back to a ship, um, whether it's the ladders or it's the food or it's the smell, uh, personally, I don't like going to ships and not, uh, not going up to the bridge. I love this. Uh, this is a brilliant graphic and to me, this describes the world that we're actually in, which is a world dominated by the sea, and the different colours represent the different trades that go around the world on the sea. Uh, what do you make of that, Mike? I don't know what to say. I mean, he likes looking out his window at the ships. We can't get the carriers the to see the Type 45s, yeah. can't go into warm water. We've got problems with missile systems, propeller shafts, recruiting. But the colours on the map are just wonderful. So where did we send Admiral Radican? We sent him somewhere special uh, to give his expertise on how to fight a land war. Let's just remind ourselves of this little Guardian report here. And uh, there we are. That's our guy, how UK military chief became key NATO liaison in Ukraine. He can't keep his fleet at sea, so we sent him off to Ukraine to tell the Ukrainian army how to fight the Russians. And of course, what's happened? An utter disaster. Well, meanwhile, how is the British army doing? Well, let's go back to a little piece of video clip with General Sir Patrick Sanders to see what he's learnt. And if you're in the army now, you join now, the army you join will look radically different in the course of the next six or seven years. And just to give you a sense of, of the pace of that, um, we've now got um, a really clear sense of our purpose. So the army's purpose is to fight and win wars on land. Well, there we are. Astonishing news from General Sanders. Apparently, the army is supposed to fight and win wars on land. It's remarkable. I, I was under the impression it could have been at sea, but well, he, he's happy with that. I think so, at sea, but anyway. So what sort of politicians have brought this madness to the military? Let's have a look at uh, our old friend Ben Wallace. There's a rumour there's a reshuffle tomorrow or the day after. Yeah. In which case... This will be your last hurrah. In that case, I'll just be over there in the seating with everyone else. <laughs> Why did you decide that you'd had enough? Uh, well, there's a man over there that slightly inspires me to go on your own terms. Um, I think uh, I'd done four years. I'd done three years as security minister. That's seven years of so 24-7. So seven years, which was enough to help the general carnage ripping apart Britain's armed forces and then following the lead. I think he's referring to Tony Blair in that particular um, scenario. Um, he just walks away, leaving the uh, chaos and the madness. Uh, let's have a look at another one. This is Jane Cartledge talking about procurement. Well, as the new Minister of State for Defence Procurement at the Ministry of Defence, I thought I'd come to Abbey Wood. Um, to see DNS, which is about as close to the front line of procurement as you can get, doing all these amazing things, procuring new equipment for our armed forces, maintaining the stuff that's already there. Uh, it's been really interesting, and I look forward to working with them in the future. I was incredibly inspired to meet the staff because, I mean, particularly the ones involved in, involved in procuring for Ukraine, they've worked so hard to get stuff out there, and it's made a real difference uh, in theatre, made a difference in what is you know, a full-on war in Europe today, they should be very proud of what they're doing, but we've got to keep doing that, and I'm here to work with them and make sure we can keep delivering for Ukraine, but also for the British Armed Forces and what they do around the world. Well, as we're going to be hearing a little bit later in today's news, uh, procurement is not working in any shape or form. And if uh, materiel has been supplied to Ukraine, it's certainly not reaching the, the uh, front line of the UK armed forces. So another massive uh, failure. Uh, but let's just come back to our old friend Ben Wallace, uh, because he mentioned NATO. Let us move on to the substantive issues of NATO and what is happening in Ukraine. I, would, I suppose the one thing that has happened that, you know, I think 
it was Emmanuel Macron who was saying that NATO was brain dead, and no one would say that now. It's found its reason to be um, in a way that was unimaginable prior to the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Is NATO in a stronger position? And we hear about the fraying of NATO unity. What is more remarkable in your mind, the fraying or the extent of the unity? Well, first of all, NATO has worked uh, throughout this war. Well, of course, NATO hasn't worked throughout the uh, war in Ukraine because, of course, Ukraine is on the verge of defeat, terrible carnage on the battlefield. And it's obvious that uh, the power of the Russian military, even facing the help that NATO can give it, the Russians are coming out on top. Meanwhile, all of the ammunition stocks of NATO have been cleared out and most of the NATO military are without major equipment uh, because it's been given to Ukraine. So an utter shambles. Is this an accident? I don't think so. I think what we're looking at is the deliberate destruction of Britain's military. Uh, but we do, don't need to worry because the British government is spending parts and parts of money on defence. Uh, and they've just published the latest statistics. So they've got a little bit of uh, uh, video that they published on uh, Twitter this morning. Uh, it's at uh, 25 billion pounds, uh, 2 billion coming from Scotland, 186 million coming from Northern Ireland and so on. So this is all fantastic. Apparently all of the uh, nations of the UK have uh, increased their spending. Uh, and this means that there's an average of £370 per human being in the UK being spent with UK defence companies. Uh, and that is supporting 209,000 jobs uh, at the moment. So the British government extremely excited about that. Um, but of course, what they're not excited about uh, was the recent comments uh, from Donald Trump. And he was talking... NATO was busted until I came along. I said, everybody's going to pay. They said, well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. So the uh, British politicians and British mainstream press going absolutely nuts over that statement. Uh, they're apparently uh, panicking over whether Trump will become president once again. But of course, if they were paying attention, uh, I realize it had been, what, three prime ministers since uh, but Trump originally made these comments, but if we go back to 2017, uh, Trump uh, opened NATO's headquarters in Brussels. We've got a picture of it here. Uh, and uh, this was uh, him standing beside Jan Stoltenberg with the 9-11 Article 5 memorial, uh, which is outside the NATO headquarters in Brussels at the moment. But Trump was absolutely uh, clear at that meeting that uh, defence spending by European countries would have to be increased, that the US was no longer going to uh, pay for uh, European defence. Uh, and, uh, well, this is what he said. I have been very, very direct with Secretary Stoltenberg and members of the Alliance in saying that NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. But 23 of the 28 member nations are still not paying what they should be paying and what they are supposed to be paying for their defense. This is not fair to the people and taxpayers of the United States. And many of these nations owe massive amounts of money from past years and not paying in those past years. Over the last eight years, the United States spent more on defense than all other NATO countries combined. If all NATO members had spent just 2% of their GDP on defense last year, we would have had another $119 billion for our collective defense and for the financing of additional NATO reserves. So it shouldn't really, sorry, Brian, I was just going to say, it shouldn't really be a surprise to anybody that Trump would make a statement like the one he made a couple of days ago, despite the hysteria in 
the UK press, which would imply that they were surprised by it in some way. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, our budget, US, UK, EU budget on defense is an order of magnitude higher than Russia or China. And yet we don't have hypersonic missiles. We have a collapsing military. Why is that? Uh, for us, for the UK, I believe it's because we no longer have any reliance on building equipment in-house. We've been told for many years we don't have the knowledge, the experience, the professionals, the quality of people. Everything was outsourced to a mis mismatch across the um, European Union. And what did we get? Poor, low-quality products at inflated prices. But I just wanted to comment on, on that that uh, speech by Trump, because look at the faces of um, the Europeans in the background glowering and looking extremely unhappy. For people who say that all these people, the Americans and NATO, work together as one cohesive block, they're all in it together, I don't think this is quite true. You can see the fractiousness between them. Um, okay, so let's uh, come back to the UK. And of course, uh, on Friday, we were talking about uh, the uh, interview with Vladimir Putin. Uh, and of course, one of the allegations that Putin made, we showed the little video clip, uh, was that Boris had scuppered the peace deal on Ukraine right at the very beginning. Um, Boris responded to this. Um, so let's start off with a little bit of video. Around the world, people are watching that ludicrous interview with Vladimir Putin conducted by Tucker Carlson. And we must not fall for this tissue of lies above all for the notion that Putin is somehow fated to succeed in Ukraine. On the contrary, he is doomed to fail. Read about it in the Daily Mail. So this morning is a comedy show, Brian. Uh, it's it's very difficult to do this because, of course, we're putting out a serious report about what's happening in the world, but we're dealing with complete, uh, we're reporting on complete incompetent idiots and, and uh, Boris Johnson has got to be the lead. That man should be removed from politics. He is dangerous. He is destroying the country. And uh, who would you believe, Putin or Boris? Well, for me, there would be only one choice and that at the moment would be Putin. Boris Johnson has got to be removed he's, he's from his position. Okay, well, let's have a look at the Daily Mail article itself. This was a headline, Boris Johnson, colon, Putin's interview with his fawning stooge, Tucker Carlson, was straight out of Hitler's playbook. It's pathetic. Uh, but unfortunately for Boris, despite the denials, um, some people have memories. And so here's a little piece of video, um, which one of Zelensky's key men uh, talking about Boris's role uh, with respect to the peace deal. Вони готові були закінчити війну, якщо ми візьмемо, як Фінляндія колись там, нейтралітет і дамо зобов'язання, що ми не будемо вступати до НАТО. Ми повернулися з Істанбулу, приїхав Борис Джонсон до Києва і сказав, що ми взагалі не будемо з ними нічого підписувати і давайте будемо просто воювати. От як тільки ми закличемо їх сісти, наступного дня вони складуть делегацію і будуть вже сидіти, чекати. So that's pretty clear. Now, that was uh, David, I apologize, I'm going to mess up the name here, but David Arakamia, uh, he's a member of Zelensky's Servant of the People Party. Uh, since 20, well, in 2014, he became advisor to the Ministry of Defense in Ukraine and chairman of the Council of Volunteers at the Ministry of Defense in Ukraine. And he has served as the secretary of the National Investment Council of Ukraine uh, since August 2014. 19. So, you know, this was... This so it's a nobody. war because of Boris. That's exactly it, yes. Um, oh, yes, just to finish the segment off then, uh, of course, uh, the bit of hysteria, uh, not only in the media about Trump, but also about the global South as a whole. So let's bring up uh, three articles from Chatham House very quickly. Uh, Stop taking the global South for granted from Baroness Ashton. Uh, then we have one here from uh, Arif... Lalani, uh, new global alliances leave the West behind. Uh, and uh, another one, measuring the power of the global South. Uh, the think tanks, the major think tanks in the UK, starting to recognize what a position we are in. 
what a disastrous position we're in. Uh, let's just move on to this uh, report, House of Commons Defence Committee, Ready for War, first report of session. Uh, this was uh, um, put out on the 30th of January this, this year. Um, today, we've only got time just to give you a glimpse. So I went to the summary. What's it talking about? Readiness, the ability to deploy personnel and equipment within a set time frame for the personnel to be trained to use that equipment effectively. My goodness, this is uh, top-rate stuff, but have a look at this, what's being said here. Operational readiness, the ability to deploy a force for a standing commitment or respond to a crisis. We find this proven. They're saying, we think that the armed forces of UK can do it, but with issues of overstretch. I think this is a uh, a ridiculous statement. But the second one, war fighting readiness, the ability to deploy and sustain a force that can fight at high intensity in multiple domains for a long period of time. We find this to be in doubt. And finally, strategic readiness, the ability of the state to identify and utilize all the tools available to its support a war fighting effort. This appears still to be more of a concept under debate. So the strategic readiness of our armed forces is described as a concept mm. under debate. This is outrageous. Uh, but if we go on through, this is the summary and the paragraphs, but I'm just going to take the headlines for you today. The inquiry itself was hampered by a lack of government transparency. So the government lying and being deceitful, that's what they always do, to cover up an, uh, um, an inquiry into the state of the armed forces. Uh, it went on to say that the UK armed forces have capability and stockpile shortages. That means they can't fight a war. And if we go on to the next one here, it says there's no easy answer to these problems. We recognize that the government is considering options for improving recruitment and retention of personnel by aiming to reform its procurement system with a view to building industrial capacity. So um, this is, of course, glossing over the real problem. We don't have an industrial capacity. That was destroyed as part of our joining the European Union but we can't recruit and hold people into the armed forces. It goes on to say that uh, I've paraphrased this. I've changed the way they've made the statement, but we're spending 50 billion a year plus the money for Ukraine. The UK's armed forces cannot fight a sustained high intensity war. And my question to this is, are we looking at calculated treason to destroy the ability of this country to defend itself? In my mind, it's clear this is treason, but others may disagree. And um, if we just come on uh, to the conclusion, it says there's no easy answer to all the problems outlined in the main report, which we will cover in future editions of the news. They claim that the threat from Russia has changed. No, it hasn't. It's always been there. They're just now understanding how powerful Russia Russia is. It says the armed forces have been overtasked. Some truth in this, but of course, you're only overtasked if you don't have the assets to do the task in the front first place. And the fleet and the army and the air force have consistently been cut in size. Uh, more leaving than joining the armed forces. Well, that's due to the outsourcing of recruitment. And finally, it says the government must break the cycle. No, the government has broken um, the armed forces. So I'm going to say without any doubt, this is the orchestrated breakdown of the armed forces. And to me, this is deliberate and has been for a great many years. But we'll we'll do more in future news editions. Now, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Grant Shapps had this to say. He said, we're in a new area, era and we must be prepared to deter our enemies, prepared to lead our allies, prepared to defend our nation whenever the call comes. And of course, uh, he was talking about uh, creating uh, some kind of militarization of our young and perhaps uh, conscription, who knows. But part of the message uh, was this, uh, that Russia has what uh, the two countries describe as a no limits partnership with China. So we've got to worry about Russia and China, but we also have to worry about terrorism and threats from non-state actors. Um, and uh, it was interesting that uh, somebody sent me uh, a little piece of video from the United States um, of a sheriff uh, speaking. Let's have a listen to this brief clip. We'll start it off with uh, 
My name is Rick Jones. I'm the Butler County Sheriff, Butler County, Ohio. Um, I just came back from a national sheriff's training in uh, D.C. Uh, three days ago, two days ago. We were briefed by the FBI director, Ray, the director of the FBI, and several federal agencies. There's 3,300 sheriffs in the United States. The President of the United States refuses to meet with the sheriffs of the 3,300. We have a hierarchy. We have a president. We have a vice president. President of the United States refuses to meet with the sheriffs. He also refuses to meet with the police chiefs of the United States. They have a hierarchy also. He refuses to meet with them to talk about border issues or talk about crime that's going on because of the border issue. We were also told by Mr. Ray, the FBI director, that there are more red flags going off now than before 9-11, okay? When I say red flags, meaning people that are here in this country that are wanting to do harm to us. There's thousands of people here from other countries, 160 different countries. They're here not to be our friends. Some of them are coming because they're wanting to come here to the best country in the world, the way we see it. Some are coming here to do harm to us. And we were told by the FBI director, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So isn't it a coincidence that both the United Kingdom and the United States have the same kind of problem? It's, isn't it a coincidence that in the UK, it's widely acknowledged that we have seen a lot of young fighting age men being brought into this country in the last uh, couple of years? And the same thing seems to be being warned about in the United States as well. Now, if you remember, if you were watching the Genocide and Empire uh, Symposium that we held a few weeks ago, Kevin Ryan was talking about this idea of a structural deep event. Uh, and one of the things that he said was a, a common feature that you might recognize a structural deep event is if you start seeing common narratives uh, in different places around the world at the same time. Uh, and I just wanted to, to sort of draw that to everybody's attention. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more with Mark uh, on that in extra. Um, so, uh, Mark, let's bring you onto the program and change topics now uh, onto Agenda 2030. Interesting timing with what you're saying, gentlemen. Uh, we have two reports here from the UN, one very recent to the left, Migration and the 2030 Agenda, a Guide for Practitioners from the uh, Office of Migration of the UN. And the Swiss government has its stamp of approval on that because it was put together in Geneva. The other is all the way from the year 2000, an older report to the right, Replacement Migration, is it a solution to declining and aging populations? This is the double barrels, gentlemen, of what's going on and why it's happening. Uh, you talk about commonalities in the UK and the US, uh, military aged men coming across the border in large numbers. Well, the, the common framework under which that happens, by all accounts, is coming from the United Nations and is more or less on autopilot so whatever, whatever national governments do, whatever they argue in Congress or Parliament, seems to be spitwise hitting the side of a battleship, if you will. And the UN's um, philosophy and policies go largely unnoticed, and if they're noticed, largely unchallenged. But we have a little bit that explains this. This is from the Migration and 2030 Agenda. Just to get the core quotes out of this, the 2030 Agenda recognizes migration as a core development consideration, core development consideration, which marks the first time migration is integrated explicitly into the global development agenda. Listen to that. The agenda is relevant to all mobile populations, all, regardless of whether internal or cross-border, displaced or not. Goals and targets will be met for all nations and peoples and all segments of society. It recognizes migrant men, women, and children as a vulnerable group to be protected and as agents of development. All types of migration should also be considered, including displacement. It gets better, let's move on from there. 
This is additionally from the one to the left, Migration on the 2030 Agenda, page 13. The last one was page 13 as well. The central reference to migration is made in target 10.7 under the goal. That's one of the 17 strategic development goals of of, um, Agenda 2030, 10.7. And that is reduce inequality in and among countries, calling to facilitate orderly, safe, and regular and responsible migration and mobility of people, including through the implementation of planned and well-managed migration policies. And we'll keep explaining it there. So migration fits into the strategic development goals. It's an integral thing. And this is uh, kind of the capstone of this. This is right out of the report. The applicability of all sustainable development goal targets to all countries underlines how each has a role to play in migration and provides a framework for progress toward more effective international governance of migration that is based on global partnerships. There's nothing about national sovereignty ever even recognized here. This moves beyond the notion of classifying countries as origin, transit, or destination and assigning migration roles and responsibilities to them accordingly and instead proposes that all countries must, I add the emphasis, must engage in migration governance together, page 14. So they're basically saying it doesn't matter where a migrant comes from, doesn't matter where they might be going. Uh, People simply have to be untethered and allowed to roam wherever they want, whyever they want. And there's really no real direct or cogent role for national uh, governments to play. They simply need to be part of the global partnership and cooperate under the UN philosophy. So you can see what this does. It basically paralyzes nations from intervening and therefore they kind of lay back and the UN policies just kind of keep the wheel turning. So you have what's going on in Britain and what's going on in the United States. Now we have um, another item of interest. This is sort of icing on the cake. This is the uh, website of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And this is brought up as an aside. Uh, This is their 2020 report. And we'll move on to the next uh, slide from there that fully explains the relevance here. As recent as 2020, the current director of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Ali Mayorkas, was a member of the board of directors. And of course, uh, right around that time, as the as the year 2021 came around and the Biden administration was seated, he became U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary. And this has been cited in some quarters as a massive conflict of interest. Now, he did evidently uh, pull back from being on the board once he became Homeland Security Secretary. But under Obama, he was deputy Homeland Security Secretary, plus he had one other immigrant-related position. And when you read the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society's philosophy and paper that I showed, and when you hear Mayorkas talk, there's nothing in his vernacular about defending the border, about defending the United States and uh, ensuring its safety even though he was a former U.S. district attorney, which is a federal prosecutor. Everything he talks about because of his Jewish background, his father was Cuban Jew, and I believe it was the mother, Romanian Jew, and he came through Cuba, and he's an immigrant. He makes a big deal of that. But everything he talks about, guys, is the plight of the immigrant, the plight of the migrant, and virtually nothing about his job. 200,000 employees under him at the DHS and that is to defend and secure the United States border. And so along with the UN policies, you have someone like that in charge in the US who sees immigration through the lens of his own background and his own upbringing, and that kind of negates the whole idea of defending the border and being serious about it. So this is what we're looking at. Do you guys have any questions or remarks? Uh, Mark, my my comment is, if we look at the uh, migration that's resulted as the, uh, uh, that's come about as a result of the war in Ukraine, where nobody's too sure, but a figure of eight million has certainly been talked about. Eight million people leave Ukraine as a result of the fighting and migrate into Europe, into UK. 
um, we start to ask a question. Was the war in Ukraine uh, orchestrated by Victoria Newland and her friends? And Boris Johnson has clearly got um, a, f a big finger in the pie that uh, basically that war was created to assist this mass migration issue. Uh, because what, what was the statement you used? These people are agents of development. The migrants are being callously used as agents of development for the Agenda 2030 goals. Well, that, that's it. And, uh, you know, so again, we've got to make the point that um, government policy and governments are the target, should be the target of our um, criticism here mainly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, leave that there and move on. If you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, uh, you can do so at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your support is very much needed and that would be appreciated. Uh, you could uh, pick something up at the UK column shop. Um, we've got a, a number of different things here to look at, uh, but please do share anything at, on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, a reminder that uh, on Sunday this week, uh, we are hosting on behalf of Organization for Propaganda Studies and Propaganda in Focus, uh, a symposium called uh, Silencing the Academics. And there's a number of academics that have been coming under attack uh, over the last number of years through the mainstream media and through their own uh, academic institutions for the, uh, the, the way they have presented information on a wide range of topics. Uh, so that is on Sunday, the 18th of February, beginning at 6 p.m. UK time. Uh, join us for that if you possibly can. Uh, then let's put an advert up for the sign, uh, Stand in the Light, uh, which the Light and Stand in the Park are hosting on May the 24th, 27th. Uh, this is taking place at uh, Pika near Workington in the Lake District. Uh, details at standinthelight.uk. Uh, if you want to get along to that, that is a music festival. Uh, and then we have uh, Sounds Beautiful Festival happening uh, in Dorset, in Wimborne, on June 27th to the 30th. Uh, there's a promo code, which is UK Column, uh, and if you're picking up tickets for that and you use that promotional code, uh, you may end up with uh, free tickets uh, or uh, either the, the tickets money being refunded to you or some free tickets that you can give to somebody else. Uh, now, at 1 p.m. tomorrow, uh, we have a longer interview with Matt Campbell, and he's joined by uh, Ted Walter from ic911.org. Uh, that'll be going out at 1pm uh, tomorrow. Join us for that. Well, I, I just wanted to say I was particularly shocked to see um, certain criticism that one of your guests, Mike, had an unusual hairstyle. We have Boris Johnson, of course, who, who may appear as a mop on occasions. Um, but uh, I, I, I thought uh, we're not yet at the stage where we're dismissing somebody from what they say because of their hairstyle. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, uh, well, what's this one? Oh, this is moving on to Mark again. Mark yes, we're, we're, we've proved the point today, Mark, because we're not too sure what is news and what is clown world, as that, that description is. So here was a serious slide. We're looking at it on screen and we're thinking it's still something to do with, with an advert. But in fact, it's the CDC, Mark. Yeah. Um, well, it is a little bit of clown world where clown world meets news, right? Um, reality is a strange thing these days. Um, according to Barnes & Noble, a clerk I talked to yesterday at one of the local outlets of that large nationwide book chain, December 2023 was the release date, as shown, for the Junior Disease Detectives Operation Outbreak. And this is a booklet. They call it a graphic novel. I call it a comic book put out by USDHHS, the CDC the USDA, and who knew, 4-H, which usually sponsors, you know, equestrian events at county fairs. And what this is, by all indications, and I studied it quite a bit, is a way to reach the preteen and teen demographic and convince them that health authorities know what needs to be known, they need not be questioned, and that Healthcare consists of what those authorities prioritize and promote, including vaccines. Just trust the science, trust the vaccines. If you want to be good detectives, learn from the CDC and help the CDC root out infectious diseases. Don't be the kind of detective that questions the CDC, like UK Column might. You don't want to question them. 
be the kind of detective that doesn't ask too many questions to authorities, which isn't really a detective at all. But anyway, the foreword just says, the following story is a work of fiction, but real public health threats and diseases are presented. The CDC hopes that this story raises youth awareness of infectious diseases and so on, and, and the threats to public health, uh, health that they pose. And it talks about the sponsors and whatnot. But moving on from there, um, this is some samples of what you look at when you open this thing. Now, one of the things that became evident during the COVID scare and COVIDocracy and all that, the bureaucracy that grew up around COVID, was that they wanted to view infectious diseases as a overarching enemy. And to fight that enemy, it's all for one and one for all. So you take the vaccine just as you would be a good soldier. And if you don't take that vaccine, you're being the kind of soldier that might go AWOL, that might desert the troops, right? So you really don't belong in, in polite society. So accordingly, we have in this graphic here that we're showing now, um, a scene where the teens who are the uh, characters within this graphic novel slash comic book are seeing marauding, slobbering germs in the form of an enemy, sort of like the, the Lord of the Rings coming over the hill and they're shooting arrows at them and they're trying to prevent them from breaching the drawbridge and entering the castle. And here we have one of the characters in this next slide, and influenza is shown as this red-haired, unibrow, demonic, greenish character, kind of green like the Incredible Hulk. So individual germs in, for individual diseases are shown as individual kinds of ghouls, and this is one example. And here in this next one, just to outline more of the conceptual uh, of what's going on here, the conceptual framework. We have another one of our teen heroes, uh, a character in the graphic novel. He's running away from germs who are, in this case, characterized as red insect-like, almost mantis-style um, beings that are chasing him, and they're going to kill him, and they're roaring behind him. And then when you go to the next slide, you see that he finally makes it into a government lab. He breaks his, breaks his way in just in time and takes a flask of some kind of potion. He has no idea what it is. It's not labeled and it's glowing. It actually has a phosphorescence and he just gulps it down. So the message is, you know, you can trust the government's potions and concoctions so much. You need only just gulp them down without questioning. And then that disease in the form of a monster will stay away. So this is what it's about. Now in the next slide, we're going to look at the back cover of this and this is my opinion, guys. You can tell me if I overreached on this. The, to the left is the back cover of the CDC uh, HHS comic book that we just looked at. And to the right is from the U.S. sci-fi TV drama from the 1960s, The Twilight Zone with Rod Serling. There's probably more than a passing resemblance there. And usually a vortex or vector is associated, at least commonly, with, with uh, a hypnosis. And a pastor friend of mine, he, he called this whole comic book idea, looking at it from a spiritual point of view, he called it subliminal indoctrination. And so that's what the CDC has come out with. The book is about a character named Eddie who gets sick at the fair. And uh, then all the other friends of his who went to the fair with him and also attended a CDC class with him as one of their own gets sick, one of their own soldiers, if you will, gets sick, then they all go out and research how to make Eddie better. And in so doing, they have these fantasies about medieval battles and fantasies about being chased by monsters. And so it's comical in a way, but yet it seems like they're trying to reach a demographic that maybe they think they haven't lost. I, I believe they think they've lost the narrative to a point. This is my opinion. And they're trying to reach a demographic that they can hang on to so they don't lose the narrative altogether. And that's my take on it. And that's what it looks like. Uh, any comments, gentlemen? 
Uh, well, Mark, I'll come back straight away and say, uh, uh, for me, it's obvious that they're using applied behavioral psychology wherever they can. And the use of cartoons is to target principally younger people. But as, as the UK Column News has shown over a great many years, we're seeing more and more childish material being presented at adults in UK and the USA in order to convince them to follow government policy. With regard to your, your comment, they're losing the narrative. I think this is absolutely true. We are seeing a desperation in these people. Boris Johnson, I think, is so angry, for example, with the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin, because Boris knows millions and millions of people have paid attention to that interview and what Putin has said, and nobody's paying attention to Boris Johnson. So these people are, are really getting very nervous, but applied psychology is the meat of it. We've also reported, I can't remember the lady's name, but a senior UN official uh, who was also boasting that the UN was going to use applied behavioral psychology in order to advance the vaccine program worldwide. So this stuff is ingrained. Uh, we know that UK had a major part to play in the origins of applied political psychology and the behavioral insights team. And clearly this has now gone worldwide. So it has to be called out for what it is. And I'd say thank you. Thank you for that report, Mark. You got another comment? Yeah. If I one more thing, I, I found it at a local library in large stacks. And I also found out that it was originally produced, came into existence in 2018. But it's being evidently reissued as a new thing, uh, December of 2023. So it's interesting that this was created before the pandemic, and it talks in there about hospitals being overwhelmed, about an infectious flu spreading around the world, and about the streets of, of major cities and other towns being almost empty before the COVID thing came along. Okay, thanks for that, Mark. Right, uh, let's move to net zero. Uh, and well, last week, last few weeks, this graphic has been doing the rounds. Uh, 10th, 11th of February, big protest weekend, stop the war on the motorists and farmers. Uh, this was uh, a big meeting at Orpington War Memorial, um, and this was being described as the Sutton Cam blocking. Um, and well, the media going a bit nuts about this today because uh, indeed they succeeded in doing exactly that. So here is uh, a tweet, a a post on X from Action Against ULAS. This, of course, is with respect to the, the ultra-low emission zone. And the reason for this particular uh, protest was because this part of London was not subject uh, to ULAS until the expansion. And then basically overnight, they found themselves uh, covered by it. Um, so what they decided to do, if we just pop that back on screen again, Stephanie, please, uh, what they decided to do was to go and to uh, cover up the cameras with their signs uh, that's what they did. They took out uh, effectively uh, all the cameras. Some of the cameras had already been physically uh, taken out by um, uh, other people, not part of this protest uh, pre prior to it. So some of the cameras weren't functioning, but they managed to cover up all the functioning cameras for the day. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, people were able to drive around uh, the area for the day without having to pay the the uh, ULES fine. Um, and uh, some of the farmers were there uh, with their tractors as well, uh, because taking advantage of the fact that they didn't have to pay uh, the money to uh, Sadiq Khan. Uh, so this uh, this protest continues. Uh, and just to let everybody know that there's the next one is on the 17th of February. That's a Saturday, 12 to 3 p.m. Uh, Biggin Hill anti-ULES protest. Have a look at the Action Against ULES uh, Twitter feed to stay up to date with these. Um, so uh, hopefully these uh, protests continue to build. Now, in the meantime, uh, the, the UK has decided that uh, Egypt is a good country to partner with, uh, and they have set up uh, the uh, UK-Egypt strategic partnership on this. It's a fully-fledged partnership, so we've got to be very excited about it. Uh, it establishes a, a fully-fledged partnership which brings technical knowledge. It brings together government bodies and industry representatives uh, to build infrastructure projects. It, it for, furthers commercial opportunities. It's all fantastic stuff. Uh, and uh, well, it was signed in Cairo, Cairo last week. Uh, 
the key point here is that it builds upon, as they, I'm going to use their words here, it builds upon the UK and Egypt's commitment to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and action on climate change. In November 2022, they say Egypt, is as COP27 president, developed the Sustainable Urban Resilience for the Next Generation initiative in collaboration with the UN. Uh, and therefore, this initiative is con committed to achieving sustainable and resilient urban cities, uh, which the UK and Egypt are dedicated to delivering via this memorandum of understanding. Now, I'm not quite sure why they needed to define this as urban cities. I'm not aware of any uh, other kind of cities, but anyway, okay, that's what they had to say. Uh, but this uh, next announcement from the UK government was uh, particularly interesting. This is EarthCare. This is a joint uh, UK-EU-Japan uh, initiative. It's a satellite, as you can see. And the EarthCare stands for Earth, sorry for the typo, Earth, Color, Aerosol, and Radiation Explorer. Uh, sorry, Earth, Cloud, Aerosol, and Radiation Explorer. So apologies for the typo. Um, and so basically, what are they saying about this? Uh, this mission uh, should lead to more reliable climate predictions, apparently. Uh, it's going to address the need for better understanding of the interactions between cloud, uh, radiative, and aerosol processes that play a role in climate regulation. Uh, and uh, it's focused uh, on research missions dedicated to specific aspects of our planet's environment, carrying on board leading edge technologies with the overall emphasis on learning more about the interactions between components and the impact of human activities having on natural processes. So, I mean, we must applaud that. Uh, well, I'd rather okay, not. Okay, didn't think so. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I'd rather not on okay. this occasion. Uh, but it gets better because the UK is the first major economy, they claim, uh, to have report to report having uh, emissions since 1990. So there's the graph that they pushed out. This is more exciting news. I don't know why you're not excited about this. Part. Well, I was just going to say, is it a coincidence that we have no industrial base uh, to support the arms uh, the armed forces? Um, why why has this base been cut? We're now starting to see possible policies that explain what's actually taken place. This is absolutely right. And uh, actually, uh, on the EU side of the channel, uh, they have just recognised, or in fact, they're celebrating the fact that they have cut their industrial base uh, by a significant margin. I can't remember the uh, the percentage off the top of my head. And th therefore, they're well on their way to meeting their net zero policies. But if we pop that one back for a second, uh, you can see the UK compared to the other uh, major economies there. Uh, they're particularly worried that the UK is one of only a few countries where uh, emissions are falling. But let's bring the, uh, the graph on screen here. Reductions in CO2 emissions among G20 countries since uh, 2010. And this is uh, the source for this is apparently Global Carbon Atlas. Uh, so they produced a nice little graph here which shows how well the UK is doing. Uh, and, uh, well, you can see that, well, according to that, well, this, of course, is from 2020. There's, uh, so, sorry, from 2010. Uh, and they were talking about uh, a longer period of time. But since 2010, it looks like we've uh, reduced our carbon emissions, according to the government, at least, or according to Global uh, Carbon Atlas, by what's that, about 38%. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, I'm, we should all be celebrating this. I mean, we are witnessing the shutdown of our industries. Uh, we no longer have a steel industry in the UK as a result of this policy. Uh, ULES, of course, fantastic policy. I hope everybody's appreciating the sarcasm in what I'm saying here. But you know, this is the this is the outcome, and this is what is driving so much of the effects uh, of uh, on our lives of what government is doing. It's all net zero that's at the back of it. Yeah, agenda 2030, net zero, all part of the. Uh... Uh, the same library. And uh, of course, Sandy Adams, uh, who will be with us on Wednesday, has been talking about this subject for a great many years, uh, exposing it. Uh, well, we're not worried about CO2 in Ukraine because the bloodshed goes on. But of course, the reality is that things are very, very bad now for Ukraine as they have run out of men and they are running out of munitions, particularly artillery ammunition, because the West is simply unable to supply 
their needs uh, because, of course, <coughs> excuse me, the industrial base has been cut in the West and we're now starting to see government surprise that they can't actually produce shells. Now, we're not saying we should be able to produce all these um, munitions to support wars. We, we are taking this from a position of peace, but reporting what is taking place in a structured way we have to point out what's going on here. So Ukraine now being deserted by both the US and the EU and effectively the UK, because uh, if some money is coming through, the ammunition that they need is not coming through. And this is now telling on the front line. So at the moment, uh, Russia is pressing forward right the way across the, the, uh, um, the front lines. And uh, the thing which is now obvious to see is that claims of a frozen front are simply nonsense. Uh, the Russians are being very slow and methodical in what they're doing. But the key battle taking place at the moment is the telling one in this war. And this is Ad Adika, which we'll just bring on screen. And as always, I give great credit to the online reporters. I've chosen Weeb Union here. Uh, the title for this particular map, which I'll explain a little bit more in the moment, is Avdivka Endgame. And uh, the Russian armed forces are launching a flanking attack to encircle Ukrainian forward positions. Now, Avdivka is a highly fortified city. Um, for years and years, the Ukrainians have been building fortifications in this city. Uh, but what's now taken place is the Ukrainians uh, from the top right of your, sorry, the Russians from the top right of your screen have penetrated the outer defences and they have now effectively cut the city in two, uh, creating one major cauldron, um, as the Russians call it, uh, where if the Ukrainian troops do not retreat, they will be caught up in this cauldron and either killed or captured. Uh, what is uh, Zelensky doing? Well, having got rid of Zeluzny, his uh, trusted head of the armed forces, and brought in Sierski, uh, his yes man, um, the aim of the Ukrainians is to bring even more troops in to try and prop up this failing situation. But of course, the real sad point is the troops are extremely low grade with very little training, and uh, the uh, mobilization teams in Ukraine are having huge problems in getting uh, men of proper fighting age. So we've got elderly men, we've got young men. Uh, it's also been reported that people with uh, injuries, even mental health problems, are being dragged into the fighting. And of course, they're not going to last long. And alongside, we've got the pitiful pictures of young women uh, kitted out to go and fight the Russians in this cauldron where they are going to die, adding to the horrific numbers uh, that we've already seen. So the last figure that UK Column News reported was 410,000 dead for the Ukrainians. We can't confirm that figure, but we can say it makes sense with all the other reports. Now, just to emphasize this battle a, a little bit more, this is uh, Defence Politics Asia, slightly different style of commentary, but all these commentators are using accurate reports from the battlefield. And he's focused in here um, showing the uh, Russian pincer into Avdivka city and how the movement towards the northwest, uh, to the left of your screen, is towards the heavily in, uh, defended industrial areas, uh, which form really the Ukrainian main bastion to the north. But the cauldron area being encircled is to the south of the lake, you can see to the right of your picture. And I do encourage people to go and have a look at these uh, uh, reports, not only um, by Defence Politics, Asia and Weeb Union, but also Free Russia, the Military Summary Channel and Rebar, because you will be getting the facts of the battle contrary to the sheer nonsense put out by the British Ministry of Defence and the BBC. Um, now, I'm just going to take us to the Ministry of Defence because are they reporting the facts that thousands and thousands of Ukrainians are being slaughtered and even more are going to be slaughtered uh, no, on the MOD Twitter or X page, uh, what have we got? We've got a report about the excellent trauma 
expertise that the UK is providing uh, Ukrainians. That's on the left of the screen. And the text image on the right of the screen is uh, a bizarre claim that Russia has now run out of doctors inside Russia because of the extent of its own casualties on the front. This is completely 180 degrees out from the truth. And I think it's really just appalling to, uh, uh, to see what's being done here, the propaganda from the United Kingdom and the Ministry of Defence. Uh, but uh, I'm just going to end on this, which somebody kindly emailed through. Uh, we're back on a report from The Telegraph, and it says that soldiers have been told to avoid, quote, Christian elements in acts of remembrance. And I was very interested in this because, of course, we see we're consistently heading in what I regard as a demonic direction with policy from the UK government. Uh, but uh, we shouldn't forget that it was only a few years ago that Britain was proud to boast that we'd allowed satanic ceremonies to take place on board her, uh, His Majesty's warships. So I'll just throw that one back to you, Mark, because I know that you're seeing um, this bizarre stuff unfolding, um, celebrating uh, satanic uh, things and monuments in, in the United States. Yes, and not to take much time with it now, but we'll cover that in extra. I want to reflect on that briefly. I appreciate that. Okay, Mark, thank you very much. Uh, well, we'll end the news there. Uh, thank you, Mark, for joining us. There will be an extra in a few minutes after the news. And I just want to end by saying a huge thank you to the people who support the UK column financially, because out of the multitude of our viewers, we know this is still relatively few people, but we thoroughly, uh, well, we're so thank you for your support and it's your financial support that keeps this channel going. So thank you very much indeed. We'll end there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.